0: It's a pleasure to welcome back Marty Weintraub to the program. Marty was with us a couple of months ago talking about a Deloitte survey that he has uh, participated in. Well, there's a new one out. This one is called The Future of the Mall and Deloitte's national retail lead Marty Weintraub is back with us to talk about it. Marty, nice to have you back on the show. Good morning.
1: Hey, good morning. Great to be back, darling.
0: A pleasure, sir. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the mall because according to one of the write-ups I've seen relative to your survey, here's, here's a quote, Marty, for your comment. Canadian shopping malls battered by the pandemic and struggling to bring back customers who have been ignoring them for years need to transform their food courts if they're going to survive. This is a major thing in the new report from Deloitte on the future of the mall. So let's talk about the malls first before we talk about how we can improve them. Because as the, the, the article indicated, uh, malls have been struggling to, for, to have customers on their premises now for a while marty
1: yeah you know uh unfortunately you know the malls in canada and quite frankly uh most of them globally were facing challenges uh, way before covid i think in that quote you mentioned it mm-hmm. so you know we saw traffic declines we did some measurement and sort of if we look year over year sort of 18 over 19 uh, alone we saw about a 20 22 percent drop in the top 10 malls and then that only accelerated as we entered the pandemic where traffic obviously you know dropped uh by another you know 30 40 percent in february and then obviously down to zero when they shut down so there were problems before and uh those now need to be addressed uh Longer term.
0: Well, let's take a look at that at the point about you made about problems before, Marty, because you're quite right. We have not seen in Canada what they have seen in the States with respect to mall closures. There have been a lot of shopping centers and shopping malls in America that have closed simply for the reasons that you've begun to identify. We've seen some close in Canada, but not as many. Is there any particular reason for that that you can identify?
1: Yeah, there's actually one one big reason which has nothing to do with the pandemic. In retail for a long time now, um we've always known that the US market was what we call in the industry as overstored, meaning basically too many stores per capita okay. in the US. That was a a long-time problem. In Canada, we did not have the similar level of quote-unquote overstoring, so we didn't have that same level of challenge to kind of crawl out of. However, you know, what we're what we're seeing now, I mean, if we just, you know, go back to the study we just did, I mean, You know, a couple of interesting stats to share with you and your listeners. Number one, you know, 78% of Canadians, you know, believe that online shopping would become, you know, more popular, you know, post-COVID. And that enclosed mall shopping would become less popular by 60% of Canadians. So, like, literally, that's a massive, massive reversal in traffic. Sure. And so even in terms, yeah, and even in frequency, we had about a quarter of Canadians going to a mall about once a week before the pandemic, and they're telling us now, you know, less than 12% of Canadians are going to go there once a week after the pandemic. That's another drop by half, right? So it's, it's a pretty serious issue.
0: Yeah, and yet you seem to think that the subtext to some of this, Marty, is this sort of built up, uh, pent up energy on the part of many canadian shoppers particularly to go to the mall to get out there to go do something to mix it up something resembling normal now we appreciate that going to the mall is going to involve probably wearing a mask and observing distancing protocols but that's the same as everywhere is there did you were you able to identify that sort of pent-up demand by canadian shoppers that uh, that may yet Save them all down the road?
2: So,
1: okay, so a couple of things. I would say number one, yeah, there's definitely going to be a little bit of pent up demand, but I, I'll be clear to say that's not going to save them all. Okay. Right? So, we've seen if we look to other geographies, and often we've looked to Asia, as we talked about last time I was on your show, you know, we look to them often to sort of see what might be happening here because of where they are on the, on the curb in the pandemic. And okay. so, we did see this uh, notion of revenge buying, which we call revenge buying, which is basically that pent-up demand, I want, I want revenge on retail, right? So I want to go and spend some money. Now, you know, let's not assume that's going to save the day. And it's also not going to be equally allocated to all parts of retail. So for example, if folks have been in malls lately over the last couple of weeks or so, as they've been opening, at least the ones that I've been in um you know you don't you see a very disproportionate amount of traffic in certain kind of retailers so some stores are closed some are basically empty and some are lined up so yes. it's, it's a little bit strange walking through a mall right now the ones that tend to have the lineups uh for the most part are in the sort of athleisure athletic space uh footwear and sneakers kind of outdoor sporting oriented kind of more aligned with how we're living our lives right now versus Those stores that are selling work clothes and and stuff like that, which obviously they're less less man for.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because our building here, and you mentioned in in your report, successful malls, and you you actually mentioned the Eaton Center in downtown Toronto and Pacific Center in downtown Vancouver. Marty, our building is on top of Pacific Center. We're on the twenty first floor of the TD Tower. Pacific Center is in our basement, so I'm quite familiar with that mall. In fact, I was in it just a couple of uh, a couple of days ago. And you're right; even a famous successful Mall venue like Pacific Center here in Vancouver, has some businesses closed. You can go and there are lineups and there are stores that are real popular, but there are businesses in that mall who are still closed marty
1: uh, absolutely absolutely so that 's just a circumstance of where we are and you know and when we spoke to landlords and retailers in the shoes for the mall study. I mean, there's, there's no doubt they're huddling in their boardrooms and they're basically taking, you know, the smart businesses, we say, are condensing their five-year strategies into five-week ones yeah. that, you know, are focusing on some very, very specific things um, that we can talk about a little bit. But yes, there's a, there's a tidal wave of changes that, uh, that need to happen. And it won't be overnight. It's going to take some time to work, the, work its way through.
0: Absolutely. Now, I want to take a break. And, and when we come back, we'll talk about particularly the Asian malls that you've referenced. Because as in terms of uh, where the future of the mall in North America might be, a lot of it is going to be found in Asian malls already. But just before the break, uh, uh, you, you talk about the food court. Being a deal breaker in Canadian malls going forward, I find when I go to mall to mall to mall, Marty, I find a lot of the same stores pretty much repeating themselves mall to mall to mall. So, uh, And the food courts tend to be very similar, too. And you're saying that successful malls down the road are going to need to pay a lot more attention to, at very least, their food courts so they're not the same as everywhere else.
1: That's, that's right. That's right. And, and it might be a little surprise to folks. I mean, I wasn't overly surprised because this, this has been happening sort of slowly and quietly, um, you know, over time. But I think now it's about to get sort of, a, an acceleration, um, aspect to it. So, you know, if you look back to the 90s, you know, we say like the, the food, your grandparents' food court is not the food court we're talking about here, obviously. Right. You know, there was, uh, in the 90s and 2000s, you know, there was only about five, six, seven percent allocated to food, you know, food in general. We see that, you know, increasing to 15, 20 percent kind of going forward. So that's a pretty major shift mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the space allocation. And what, you know, Canadians are telling us is that, you know, this is really important. You know, a lot of the other aspects of retail in a mall can be replicated and sometimes even done so better online, especially with the technology we have. But food, that is not the case, right? That social experience of dining out, safety aside, COVID aside, Um, cannot be replicated online, and so therefore that's, and that increases what we call dwell time, so time you spend in the physical space, which again would lead to more spend. Mm -hmm. That's why landlords and retailers are really thinking about the role of food, but in a whole different way, you know, food halls, um, ghost kitchens, much more local offerings, healthier offerings, so things that are now sort of, you know, um, in fashion in terms of what we're looking for in this new
0: world. Right. And dare I say, even adult beverages and waiting persons uh, in some situations would also be considered a positive, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. We're just, we're just looking for something to do that's different, safe, um, and quite frankly, different than sitting uh, on my laptop or my iPhone buying stuff. Right. And that's that's what the mall needs to become. And we may even need to change the name of the structure, to be honest.
0: Nice to have Marty Weintraub back on the program. Mr. Weintraub is with Deloitte. He's their national retail lead. And they've just released another survey, this one called the future of the mall. And a lot of your surveying amongst mall people in the preparation for this one, Marty, uh, you talked to a lot of people who were very apprehensive about uh, the future. Uh, a lot of them struggling through the pandemic, uh, looking at post pandemic realities and uh, not all of them uh, real comfortable with their prospects. Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Uh, Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think uh, there's a number of things in mall retailing that uh, are really causing some, some headwinds and, you know, really at the forefront is really the move towards digital. And so, you know, we know Amazon has had a major, major pickup during the pandemic, even though they may have, you know, disappointed some shoppers with delayed, delayed fulfillment. But overall and all, they were, uh, they emerged as a bit of a hero out of the pandemic. And, yep. and any retailer and or mall that basically had a digital plan in place, um, you know, was basically positioned better in, into this uh, situation.
0: So again, uh, that has, uh, that we've seen this uh, countless times in America where online shopping simply surpassed brick and mortar retail. And those brick and mortar retailers who weren't able to adapt digitally really took a pounding, haven't they?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you look at the number of bankruptcies, unfortunately, that we've seen so far year to date in Canada. Um, You know, they they were struggling, quite frankly, before the pandemic most of the time. And this just sort of put, uh, to some extent, the final nail in the coffin for for some of those struggling chains. Um, And unfortunately, we're not done. We're going to see many more um, store closures, as well as likely some bankruptcies as the year progresses.
0: Yeah, I regret to to, uh, agree with you on that one, Marty. We're far from done with all of this yet. But let's, let's turn the corner here, as you've already done in your survey on the future of the mall, because there are examples already, plentiful examples of malls being enormously popular still in many other parts of the world, particularly in Asia. So what are they doing in some of those Asian markets, Marty, to keep their malls full of happy customers?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, we look at, we've been tracking uh, even the consumer mindset and for some reason we are still seeing, China actually never dropped quite frankly as deep and for as long as we've seen here on the, on the other side of the world. And so, you know, even when we look at certain measurements like, uh, Asian consumers comfort in, in leaving their homes to go out to a store, I mean, I think when we spoke even last time on your show here here in Canada, that number was maybe in the forty forty. So forty percent of Canadians comfortable going out to a store, right. and it, that grew from a low of you know twenty five thirty percent in Asia. It it never really dropped uh, that low, and it's still you know uh in the 50 60%. So they sort of never stayed away as long or um, as as more frequent. So I think they never saw that same sort of dark dark cloud we did. And to be honest with you, they are and have been um, in that part of the world, the greater greater Asia region way ahead of North America in investing in digital. And we have some really uh, amazing companies out there like Alibaba that has just been driving the market and and pulling the rest of the industry along with them. And therefore they're just in a much better position. I mean, you know, I'll point to one example, which is, you know, it's about the mall, but it's more about how shopping is changing Sterling. And there's an interesting startup uh, called Shop Shops, which uh, is just one example. um, And it's really indicative of how shopping is changing uh, in Asia and those trends will start to come here, which is basically where, you know, you use your phone to log in and you basically follow Um, you know, social fashion bloggers and influencers, as they go shopping into malls and into high street stores, live streaming on the app, on the platform, and you basically follow them along. And it's basically a situation where fashion meets retail, fashion show meets retail. Uh So it really just changes that experience, you know, and we're going to start seeing those kinds of platforms emerge here in North America, which will be another disruptor.
0: Interesting. And what about attractions? I mean, if there's a flamboyant uh, mall anywhere in Canada, it is, has to be West Edmonton Mall with all of the uh, attractions built into it. I mean, it's it's been a destination for particularly western Canadians for a long time because of all the stuff they've got in it for you and particularly your kids to do. You can actually spend a day just being at the mall. So, is that the kind of of, of activity level uh, in Terms of attractions that are working in successful Asian malls right now?
1: Um, maybe a little bit. I would say, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you know, look at the, the Mall of Edmonton or even the Mall of America in the U.S. I mean, th- there are these examples of these sort of mega, mega malls. Yeah. But that's actually, I would say, not the example of what we're talking about is needed in the future. I mean, let's be honest, for all of that, all the greatness um, and interesting stuff that might be in that mall, it's been there for a long, long time. And even even those properties get tired. And quite frankly, people get bored um, of that. And to be honest with you, even the consumer is changing. So, you know, the mall was originally built for, you know, the family, whether it be mom or mom and dad with their, you know, 2.2 children to go out in the afternoon on a weekend and, you know, basically kill some time and and fulfill some needs. But that's not necessarily the emerging customers. So if you think about the millennial customer who does not have children, maybe delaying when they have children, So what about them? That is where the emerging spend is coming from, right? So those kind of older school mega malls are not going to do it for the new shopper.
0: Interesting stuff. So the new shopper is going to demand, among other things, uh, a a different approach to uh, taking a a food break, perhaps even a cold beer and a tasty bite uh, along the way. So make sure that that's included going forward if if you want to stand a chance at keeping your head above water.
1: Yeah, or even more so, right? I mean, you know, progressive malls, do they be building strategies that create, you know, what we call mixed use spaces that kind of brings together residential, office, entertainment, leisure, health and wellness. You know, it's it's really it's not just about rides and attractions, it's about other purposes and uses. Um and you know, as we know, one of the things we've we've definitely been seeing as a changing uh society here is a focus on community and local. And I think the malls need to start reflecting that.
0: Interesting stuff. Marty Wontraub, a pleasure to have you back on the show. It's uh, always a treat to have a conversation with you. you. You open our eyes a little bit. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. Marty Weintraub joining us from Toronto, from Detroit, where, uh, Deloitte, rather, where he is the national lead. You can read the future of the mall at Deloitte's website. Joined by Paul Holden. Mr. Holden is the president and CEO of the Burnaby Board of Trade, and just the other day, the Burnaby Business Recovery Task Force released their final report and identified 13 actions for economic stabilization and recovery. The chair of that task force is paul holden the ceo of the burnaby board of trade who is back with us on cknw weekend mornings good morning paul Good morning, Stanley. How are you? I am well, thank you, sir. Good to have you back on the program, Paul. You're a busy guy chairing this task force. And in addition to uh, running all of the activities at the Burnaby Board of Trade, tell us a little bit about the background behind the, the study and the report. How long did it take you? And, and I know the mayor was a member of the committee. How many people did you have on your on your committee to put these recommendations together?
3: Yeah, well, we, we, we struck the committee as, as recently as, as in May. So the whole process happened far more quickly than you would normally expect it to do for, for this kind of, of uh, depth of study and, and, and breadth of work. So we, we acted pretty quickly on this. We had um, 15 of us on the task force. As you mentioned, the mayor was on there, together with representatives of, of large and small business, the not-for-profit sector, um, the uh, a- academia, the local uh, academic institutions, labor, um, and, and others so we had a very broad um, uh, representation on the committee uh, it was a, a pretty hectic pace of work with a lot of work done behind the scenes by the secretariat that the group uh, uh, the group put together as well and then we came out of it as, as you said with this report uh, uh, just a few days ago yeah. and it's, um, it's something that we're very very proud of I think it, it's unique and, and I think it really does address a whole range of the issues that the businesses and the communities are facing right
0: now well and it's certainly there's no shortage of issues is there paul let's talk a little bit about the center for business recovery and resilience because that seems to be quite literally the centerpiece for not only the report but all of the action items that you recommend in the report they all seem to be able to flow easily out of the center for business recovery and resilience so tell us more about that
4: yeah, sure.
3: So, so, um, the, we, when we first started to, to reach the point where we were, were finalizing some of the action points, it was quite clear that, that almost everything at some point was going to be flowing, um, through the Burnley Board of Trade and that we would be the ones that would be either convening the groups of, of committees and, and working groups together or, or just running the actions ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we decided that, that rather than have what could have been a, a dozen or so, um, action points, all being um, enacted, being put in place in, in, in very different ways and by different groups um, without any kind of real focus as to who was in charge of them and running them. We decided that the best thing to do here would be to set up a Centre for Business Recovery and Resilience within the Burnley Board of Trade, uh, where that would be the the focus and the hub of everything that was going on uh, coming out of this report and more. So the, the Board of Trade, as you know, It's our job to be there for business. We are the the catalyst for economic development. We bring businesses together. We're there to represent the interests of business in Burnaby. So it was a natural place for this center to to reside. And obviously, initially, it's a virtual center. There's not an awful lot that we're able to do physically right now. Um, But I could see that um, developing into a, a mix of both a virtual and physical center as time uh, as time moves on. So in the initial stages, the, the requirement is that we're going to have somebody who's going to be running uh, this centre and, and really making sure that the action points, as, 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 of which there are a, a dozen, mm-hmm. um, those, those action points, the initial um, uh, requirements and, and resource needs and action plans are, are, are put into a very cohesive plan. And, and through this centre, we can start working right away.
0: It talks a little bit, some of the background material that accompanied uh, the action plan, Paul, uh, talked about the survey data that you've been able to collect from Burnaby businesses. That's all part of putting this report together. So talk to us a little bit about surveying business. And Burnaby's a pretty typical lower mainland municipality in terms of dealing with COVID-19 uh, and struggling with some of the details as everyone is. What are business people in Burnaby telling you when you're Surveying about uh, surveying them rather about how well they're handling all of this.
3: Well, I think what we're finding is, and, and, and one of the reasons that we we put the task force together in the first place is um, you know, this impacted businesses uh, dramatically and quickly, and perhaps more so than anybody would have ever imagined. And, and so, uh, initially, our role as a board of trade was was what you might call triage, really, just to make sure that businesses had those. Short term supports to keep them going sure and um, and so there 's been a lot of work that we've done with with the different levels of government to make sure that businesses had some of that work. but then of course, once you get past that initial point of of getting some of those financial supports in place, um, many of them for the short term you 're then looking um, really at, at the next phase of uh, as, as to, to use what, what you said earlier stabilizing the businesses and and trying to put some form of recovery in place. Uh, We were hearing from when we were uh, surveying our our businesses at that point, you know, we were hearing some of the things that were important to them. Uh, You know, we know that PPE is important um, and it's it's important that businesses have them in place. But it comes at a cost. And and a lot of businesses were talking about the fact that that, there is this cost. They need to know where they can get them and they need to know how they can afford to pay for them. Um, Buying local is something that's vitally important to Uh, the business community right now, and so we 've got to look at ways that we can stimulate that local spend um, and that then leads to the to one of the other areas that came out loud and clear, which is cash flow. Businesses were really struggling for cash flow, so you 'll see in our report there are a couple of different areas there which specifically address um, assisting those areas that i 've just mentioned um, and, and and others you, you know we 've got to build this consumer confidence rebuild it to, to get back into a situation where cash is flowing through local businesses um and and that they're able to Uh, to keep themselves going and move into this next phase.
0: Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about uh, the other end of that, uh, uh, Paul, because in addition, and and the cash flow aspect of of this conversation, a part of the cash flow reality was to have in the very short term been attended to by the government through programs like the wage subsidy and CERB and others. What are Burnaby business people telling you about uh, in terms of the actual money getting to the people who need it to keep the business afloat in a timely fashion?
3: Well, I think in the early stages, that was one of the issues that businesses were were, were facing. I think it was in in all credit to the government, they came out and they put initially the 10% wage subsidy plan in, but that was quickly then moved to the current wage subsidy program. Um, And they moved way, way quicker than you would normally expect um, government to move to create a program of that uh, size and scope. Mm-hmm. Um, the challenge, of course, was that it was taking six to eight weeks before businesses started to see some of that money, and in many cases, that that may have been a little too late. So we know that a lot of businesses really had some struggles in those early days of of keeping their staff on until such time as they started to receive the the subsidies and and keeping their businesses going. So we we, we saw in the early stages there were those kind of challenges, but then as as people were starting to get more used to the um, to the program, and, and a lot of people were coming to us, obviously for assistance in how they might be able to apply. Um, the next phase was, well, we're trying to rebuild our business, but if we step uh, beyond a, a 30% loss in revenue, which is obviously what businesses want to do, then all of a sudden you're out of the program, right. and you could find yourself, you know, down 28%, for example, and 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 you're out of the program. So we spent quite a bit of time. Advocating for the changes, and we were very pleased to see the other day that some of those changes were put. It, changes were put in. When now, if a business is is losing money still, or is down on revenue still, but not by as much as was originally required, uh, they can still qualify for a slightly reduced amount of that seventy five percent subsidy. So, I think some of these programs are, are important, and, and one of the areas of the task force was to strike a working group that continually looks at the programs, surveys the business community to find out. Um, how effective those programs are being and then works with, uh, With us at the Board of Trade through our policy work and and make sure that we're doing the right advocacy to to the levels of government that are needed.
0: And the other side of that coin, Paul, in in addition to cash flow and and the concerns of the business operator, it it has to be matched not necessarily equally, but close to it by the consumer. There has to be an uptick in consumer confidence to the point where going out and going to a, a business establishment in person and getting something accomplished buying something, having a service provided, that sort of thing. Uh, the consumer confidence level uh, initially, when we talked about this a couple of months ago, was really uh, uh, very, very low. What do your people now tell you that they're seeing in terms of a return of consumer confidence, if at all, Paul?
3: Well, I think we're seeing it gradually. And, and I think it's, it's just inevitable. You know, this is a, This is an, an unprecedented time. And and you're bound to find different people have different levels of comfort with with getting back out there again. Right. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think the, the Provincial Health Office has done a fantastic job of of reassuring people of what we are able to do and, and, and able to do safely. And, and I think it's important for groups like us and for our business community to make sure that we, uh, we're supporting those businesses that are open, um, that we're, we're showing people that they're open safely. Uh, we're showing people that they're working with WorkSafe BC to make sure that all the requirements are in place. Um, and that it's, and it's perfectly fine to go out there. You know, businesses are dealing with reduced capacities that they're able to have um, at, at the present moment. But we have to do whatever we can to make sure they're getting as close to, to, to filling that reduced capacity as is, as is possible. So um, part of, of what you'll have seen in the report is a, a continuation and expansion on some of our existing by, uh, by local by burnaby programs that we've put in place. And there are a couple of different um, programs that we're looking to bring in and to develop that, that will help to not just promote the local businesses, but to encourage the community and not just the community to come out there and spend money, but other businesses to spend money with each other. Um, oh, cool. And I think that's that's at the heart of what we do as an organization, as a as the Chamber of Commerce for, for the city of Burnaby, is making sure that it's it's businesses supporting their, their fellow local businesses. So Absolutely. We're looking there at, at some programs that we can bring in to make sure that, uh, you know, if a business is, has got a, a normal annual procurement spend on whatever products it might be, that wherever possible they look to divert some of that
0: spend uh, locally, Paul Holden is with us. Mr. Holden is the president and CEO of the Burnaby Board of Trade, and they've just uh, published at their website, by the way, bbot.ca, you can go and peruse at your leisure the final uh, report from the Recovery Task Force uh, with respect to stabilization and recovery. And you've identified, Paul, uh, as 13 items, some of which are quick start items. Let's zoom in on those as we're likely to see those most quickly implemented what's the most important thing aside from establishing a central point where people can go for information and and uh, and cross connect with each other uh, as the center for business recovery and resilience will prove to be going forward what's the next most important thing you can do um,
3: well I, th- I think when I, when I look at the the, the uh, all 13 of these um, uh, these actions. And some of them that you mentioned there, starting under the quick start, yeah. a lot of progress has been made already. So, you know, opportunities for patios and out, outdoor dining, a lot of work has been done on that. And the city has been great working with, with us and, and the local businesses on making sure that uh, there's more availability for uh, use of outdoor space, not just by restaurants and, and, and the hospitality area, but by other businesses that may need to do that as well. But I'll touch on a couple of the areas, one of which was a quick start and, and, and is, has, a, has a, a fairly timely um, aspect to it, but is a, is, is a longer-term issue, and that's the issue of childcare. Oh, okay. Um, when, we're trying to get, when we're trying to get people back to work, um, a, a major issue, especially right now where, where full-time school um, in September is looking un- unlikely uh, for, for all, all students to be able to go at the same time. That's and, right. And certainly during the summer months. Uh, these summer months are a challenge, you know, with, with summer camps not all happening and, and with childcare spaces at a premium. So we've been doing a lot of work with the city of Burnaby, with the childcare care providers, uh, uh, advocating with the provincial government and talking to some of the larger employers who now find themselves with a lot of space on their hands mm-hmm. in, their, in their buildings um, to really look at what can be done uh, creatively and what can be done quickly in many cases. Um, to ensure that people are able to get back to work by having a space for their children, either from a childcare perspective or as we move to, to September, a place where they can come and, and conduct their, their virtual online education, if that's, the, if that's the space we're in as we get to September, which it, it seems it will be. So I think that this one here, this area is one that we're hearing from a lot of businesses as they try to get their employees back to work Um, Child care is one of the larger impediments to getting everybody back, Um, and it's something that uh, this task force identified early and and started to do some work, as I say, with the city and child care care providers um, right away. Uh, that work is ongoing, and it's a it's a really important part of what we'll, we're looking at going forward.
0: Well, it sure is, Paul, because we we'd, uh, actually featured a report earlier this morning on this program from Simi's show on Friday. She had a conversation with an RBC economist, and they'd just done a report about women's participation in the workforce, Paul. And right now, currently, summer 2020, women in the workforce, the numbers are as low as they were in the 1990s. And a lot of this, as you point out, seems has to do with the 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 priorities of family responsibilities and work options uh, and some of those not intersecting as well as they once used to and that is a a real a, a growing problem especially if as you predict and i think you're quite accurate school is not a regular reliable certain thing in terms of household planning in the fall
3: no, that's right, and and so we're we're getting ready for that, and and we certainly want to help um, uh, in, employers uh, get their employees back to work, and help families make the necessary arrangements uh, for their children during the summer months, but with a with a with very much an eye on what's going to be happening in the medium term as we we move into September as well. So, a lot of work being done uh, on that area behind the scenes, and it's uh, a key area. You know, we've been advocating in in the area of childcare for many years. Sure, it is a, it, it's. It's a social issue and a business issue. And and I think it's one now that uh, has perhaps become even more highlighted.
0: And uh, one of the other things in terms of your quick start uh, items that you've identified in your report is this uh, advocating with senior governments for more financial supports. And we've talked about this already in terms of the wage subsidy, a board of trade, a a BIA, those municipal uh, entrepreneurial associations do play a role in advocating senior levels, don't they?
3: They do, and we work. We have a great relationship with the um, the BIA's here in Burnaby, and um, we have a great relationship with with all levels of government. To be honest, as as we uh, spend a lot of time advocating on a number of issues, and and this is one where, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know we, we we saw an extension to the wage subsidy program the other day, and we will be striking this working group um, to work uh, almost as a task force within the Burnaby Board of Trade to make sure that that. Uh, we identify any gaps because there have been businesses that have fallen through gaps um, in terms of uh, the the support that's been out there. We want to make sure we understand what those gaps are and that we're doing the right kind of advocacy to fill them. Because uh, although a lot of businesses have managed to, to get to, to avail themselves of some of the support, there are a great many that just, just haven't managed to qualify. So we're, we're, we're working very hard to make sure that... Uh, Uh, that that nobody falls through the cracks
0: yeah final point to you paul and you mentioned this earlier ppes we think of personal protective equipment in terms of frontline workers and hospitals and and emergency situations but businesses now every business you you will be offering people masks i you you can't literally go into many businesses now and either be wearing a mask and 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 be asked in or they'll offer you a mask at the door so that's an expense to that business they're going to give you a mask and and hand sanitizer and whatever else they deem appropriate, they're paying for that before you even get in the store.
3: Well, that's right. And and, uh, you'll note in our report that that from a survey that that we conducted, um, roughly a third of organizations had to spend more than $1,000 in the first month um, following the reopening announcement just to to make sure that they've qualified uh, or satisfied the WorkSafe PC requirements. Of course. Um, and 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 at a time when when there's not much money coming in uh, another thousand dollars going out is is a real hardship so we're looking at the provincial government to provide support to businesses who might be struggling with these uh upfront costs um either through direct grants or perhaps through a rebate on their work safe bc it, premiums but Interesting stuff. we need to find some way of mitigating that cost because it's uh, It's just another expense that businesses are struggling to afford.
0: Well, it's a great action plan. You can read it all, friends, at their website, Burnaby Board of Trade, is bbot.ca. Its CEO is Paul Holden. Great to have you back on the program, Paul. We'll talk again. Thanks, darling. Rob Williams is the sports editor over at the Daily Hive and a good friend of this program here to talk white cap soccer and whatever else we can squeeze into eight minutes on the radio. Robert, good morning. Hey, Sterling, how are you? I am well, thank you, sir. You wrote an interesting piece in the Daily Hive after that first Whitecap game. It was supposed to have been their second, but that's a whole other story. A, a wild, high-scoring tournament opener, opener rather was how you generously described the Whitecaps game uh, the other night in Florida. And they're back at it again tonight against arch-rival Seattle. Hopefully, it'll be a little more, um, more what's a good word, organized than last time. Rob, what do you think?
2: Yeah, what a what a what a way to start the tournament. I mean, it was um it was looking so good for them early on. They had a, an early 2-0 lead. Um they you know, they essentially got gifted a couple of carrels yes. um in their in their opener against San Jose. Uh and yet they just um you know, leaked way way too many chances and and eventually the dam broke and and uh, they ended up with a the tournament opening, uh, loss, but they're actually, I mean, if they can turn it around, they're actually in still a decent shape. Um, the match between Seattle and San Jose, the, in their opener was a, was a, a draw, so. Um, they're in they're in decent shape, but they need some they need some results in the last two two matches of their group stage here.
0: Okay, so that uh, goes tonight at seven thirty hour time, so Whitecaps fans can get there uh, get a, a soccer fix. Uh, also on TV these days, Rob uh, is Major League Baseball uh, with Blue Jays. I watched a game last night uh, for a while between the Mets and the Yankees coming from uh, the Mets ballpark, uh, and the the commentators were talking about it. They're now going to use fake crowd noises at baseball games where there are absolutely nobody in the stands. That's just <laughs> odd. Have you heard that yet?
2: Yeah, I, I, I hadn't heard uh, any final decisions, but I know that the, the, this is something that uh, leagues are discussing. I've, I've actually watched uh, quite a bit of Australian rules football okay. during, the, uh, j- during the pandemic, and uh, they've been using uh, the fake crowd noise as well. I must say, I think it adds to the experience. Um, it, 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 it's tended, to, at least in Australian rules football, it's tended to be um, more of background noise, like kind of more white noise, like just hearing a bit of a hum and and in, in the background, rather than like over the top uh, crowd noise. Sure, you know what I mean. Um, so I found that it's, that it's, um, that it's helped in that regard, but of course, yeah, there's nobody, if if you do think about it, there's nobody actually in the, in the crowd, but it, it can sort of just, I don't know, provide a bit of comfort, um, and and give you a bit more of that that noise that you're you're used to hearing.
0: And interestingly, at uh, in in New York City last night at the baseball game, they did uh, behind home plate what they've been doing in some of the Asian leagues: the Taiwanese league, the Korean league, and the Japanese baseball leagues all have pro leagues. And they all now some of them are starting to let some people back into their ballparks. But in a lot of cases, they had cardboard cutouts of fans, and that's what they had in New York last night. And that was kind of fun. I uh, wanted to ask you about the Blue Jays. We carried a story, Aaron had it just a few minutes ago about uh, the home of the Blue Jays, because the government of Canada says, no, you're not going to have, we're not going to have American teams coming across the border, ignoring quarantine rules and doing whatever they want to play baseball. It's not on. The Blue Jays will have to play home games somewhere outside of Canada. So it's going to be either Dunedin, Florida, or Buffalo, New York. So what are you betting on?
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's um, that's been one of the most uh, interesting stories I think during the pandemic is what the Blue Jays are doing. Um, you know, they they started off even just having their spring training, they were going to be in Florida, and then yeah. they came they came back. I would I would say that that, um, that there's probably a pretty good chance they end up in Buffalo. The for Dunedin everything's ready to go they they are used to playing out of there they have all their facilities that they need because they use it for spring training every sure. year so so from a baseball perspective it's that's the that's the easiest one to just plug and play but florida <laughs> i mean the amount of cases at, coming out of florida every single day um it, it, i just think it's it's too dangerous to be to be you wouldn't want to pick that that if you've got another option so Um, I'm not sure the exact uh, number of cases in Buffalo right now, but it's definitely a lot lower than Florida. So uh, that's where their spring training or their um, AAA team is based out of in Buffalo. So so that's – I'm sure there's something they can do in Buffalo without – too, too much
0: trouble. Yeah, I agree with you. I put my money on Buffalo too. Five bucks. That's as high as I ever go on any bet. <laughs> uh, wanted to talk a little bit about the CFL. A, a lot of attention being paid in the in the wake of the Washington Redskins name change, which is impending. Uh, the Eskimos of Edmonton are also saying now that uh, they're bowing to sponsor pressure and societal pressure, and they're considering a name change as well. All very well and good, Rob. But how likely are the Edmonton Eskimos, the BC Lions, and anybody else? In the CFL to play a game this season. Yeah,
2: it's been pretty quiet on the CFL front of late. Um, I know that they were talking about having a, a shortened season, maybe mm-hmm. even maybe even a uh, six to eight game season just just to get something um, in in the fall. And they were talking about perhaps having uh, having games out of the hub city of Winnipeg. Winnipeg, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean. Yeah, I think that there's there's talk about that, but that's I mean th- that comes with a lot of complications because there are a lot of players on a football team, and mo- you know many of them go back to the United States every year as well. So um, doing that, and I think also just you know th- these undertakings are not easy. Like the, like the the amount of money that the that the NHL and the NBA are putting into their to their you know, return to play plan, the bubbles. uh, Yeah. Yeah. is astronomical. Sure. And and it's a lot easier for those leagues, uh, to be pouring in money to ensure safety than it is for the CFL, I think. So, uh, I think it's going to be rather difficult. I think if the, if it was a, if it was a, you know, if it was a different, if they were playing a different sport, if they were playing basketball and you just had to keep 12 to 15 players, um, healthy it would be a lot easier, but but a football team is a lot bigger and a lot That's right. more uh, complicated.
0: Yeah, 45-plus players. Uh, one minute, Mr. Williams, to talk hockey. Vancouver Canucks have been working out at Rogers Arena, as have all their other teams. They don't actually play a game until the Winnipeg Jets, uh, just a couple of days before the regular season, such as it is, begins in Edmonton. Uh, what are you thinking of the Canucks prospects so far?
2: Yeah, I'm. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to be at Rogers Arena tonight. They're doing the the second um, inter squad uh, game where they're they're trying to mimic essentially uh, a game day. So they're going to have a game day skate in the morning, and then they're going to go back to their back to their places, and then and then return in the evening for a seven o'clock game. So. It'll be me and and uh, you know ten to fifteen of my closest media <laughs> right. friends in the stands, and that's about it. Well, because uh, of... so you know physically distanced. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I I think the the it's, I think people are really excited to, for Canucks hockey be returning. Um, it's going to be uh, you know there's going to be a lot of eyes on them when uh, when they play especially when they play their first game on. Uh, August 2nd against the Minnesota Wild. That's going to be
0: interesting. Sure it's going to be a lot of fun, too. So you and 14 other lucky fans get to go into the actual Canucks game tonight, you lucky devil. Well, enjoy (laughs) it, Rob. Enjoy it. And, And hoist one for us while you're up there in the press box tonight, will you? <laughs> Sounds good. There's Rob Williams from the Daily Hive with a look at sports for a Sunday morning. A pleasure to welcome Dominic Vogel to the program. Mr. Vogel is founder and chief strategist with Cyber SC, and he's here to talk to us about some pretty spectacular hacks that have gone on over the last few days. Dominic, good morning. Welcome back. It's great to have you on the show again.
4: Thank you, Sterling. How are you doing this fine Sunday morning? Well,
0: I am doing so well, it almost hurts. I'm having a great day, as a matter of fact. Uh, Russian hackers target Canada, U.S., and U.K.'s COVID-19 vaccine research, according to intelligence agencies from all three countries, Dominic. This was serious business. The Canadian uh, establishment referred to the hackers as serious state Actors are uh, uh, allies. referred to them as Russians. Either way, it's pretty serious stuff. What did you make of it?
4: Well, you know, it, uh, to me, I mean, what I've been telling people is this is just an ongoing evolution of, of spy work. You know, uh, all this stuff has been happening since the <laughs> since the 1930s and 40s. I mean, this is all James Bond type stuff. We're you just bet. Seeing the We're just seeing the digital evolution of it, especially in this time of of COVID right now. uh, Having information around vaccine, uh, that's that's a matter of of, uh, national importance. If a country can gain an edge in in, in that area, uh, there may be a a greater opportunity there. So it certainly doesn't surprise me that this is happening. I think it's a good wake-up call that uh, laboratories and uh, pharmaceuticals and uh, organizations that are working on vaccines that, you know, they need to step their game up when it comes to cybersecurity and the, uh, various forms of government need to support them in that as well.
0: No question, Dominic, and in fact, this sets up our next guest in our next half hour uh, in, in in a very interesting way. We're going to talk to Ali Artakani, who's the founder and managing director at Novatur Ventures here in Vancouver. They're downtown on Georgia Street, and they're one of a group that are involved right now in COVID-19 serological tests and the efficacy of those tests. So uh, it wasn't part of my original intention when speaking with Mr. Artikani, but clearly security surrounding their investigations and their research into the COVID-19 vaccine they're trying to accomplish is got to be probably more important than they had even reckoned on in the first place, don't you think?
4: I I would certainly think so, and especially when stories like like that come out, I think it it forms and serves as a great awareness that so, uh, we don't live in a vacuum and we don't live in a world where all countries are friendly with one another. <laughs> so I think it's really important that the, uh, these organizations recognize that and uh, that they do what they can to make sure that they they make their uh, research uh, as secure and, and safe as possible. So, um, it doesn't get you know affected in, in, in an adverse way.
0: Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny that we're reacting to it as kind of, in many cases, over the top, as some people have in the past few days following these Russian hacks on Canada, the States, and Britain with respect to COVID-19, because you described them very accurately as what's well, kind of James Bond stuff. Really, this has been going on since the end of the Second World War. This is the Cold War in the digital era, and uh, but the plot remains the same. Doesn't it, Dominic?
4: Absolutely. All, 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 all that's really changes the mechanisms <laughs> uh, that, that, that's happened before. You know, there would be a lot of uh, guess, you know uh, people work involved, you know, uh, undercover work. Now, a lot of this crime can be uh, done wherever uh, wherever it's done in, in the world. You know, you can be on a nice beach somewhere in the middle of the Pacific and, and breaking into these research labs. You don't actually have to uh, <laughs> uh, break into them physically anymore. So it's, it's like you're saying there, uh, sorry, that's a great terminal. You know, this is basically the cold war in, in the, in the digital age. And, and that's what we're living through.
0: And interesting enough. Uh, and we saw an extension of that very recently. And I'll bet you watch this one with rapt attention too, Dominic, when we saw basically now, again, they never said the word China. But the Prime Minister of Australia did say they were under attack by a state-sponsored actor referring specifically to China without saying so. And China really lowered the howitzers and let Australia have it on as many fronts as they could imagine uh, because Australia had the temerity to demand a global investigation into the origins of the COVID-19 virus and why China kept it a secret for as long as they did. They retaliated by attacking the infrastructure of Australia. Yes. You know, and, and that's what
4: uh, you know, I would say is really interesting in, in, in the capacity in which the uh, I almost say that the nuclear deterrent that used to exist is, is somewhat less important now than it was in the 1960s. Now we're in this age of almost a cyber deterrent in which uh, countries uh, have may have the uh, ability to just bring down infrastructure through uh, launching cyber attacks. You know, in, in, in which now, uh, countries have to, uh, almost think about what they're going to say and how other non-friendly states might, may uh, interpret that based on the, uh, cyber, uh, attack capabilities that, uh, uh, different nation states have. You know, so I always tell people that in the 1960s, it was all about the nuclear deterrence. Yep. Uh, now, I think we're in an age where um, because of this in, in, incredibly interconnected digital age that we find ourselves in, I'd say it's very much the, the digital deterrent or, or, or cyber deterrent that, that we all uh, are, are living through right now. That, that's very much becoming um, almost a weapon, shall we say, a weapon of choice.
0: Well, there's no question, and, and you know how then do uh, do countries? Uh, I mean, you have to go. Uh, it's an adjustment of your defensive postures because, of course, you have an army and a navy and an air force and all sorts of other uh, intelligence connections and so on. But this is just another uh, realignment of uh, many a country's defensive posture to include a, a beefed up cybersecurity uh, area, don't they?
4: absolutely and I think this is uh, and we're going to see this really evolve I'd say we're still very much in the, in the early days of this in the grand scheme of things yeah so over the coming uh, years I think we're going to see the types of uh, cyber capabilities and a lot of what we've been worried about a lot of these theoretical attacks attacks about you know a country bring down the uh, infrastructure um, uh, for a, uh, for a country you know, a lot of that hasn't really come to pass yet but um, you know, that very, very way uh, very, uh, might uh, come to pass in, in the near future. So I think it's important that we have the right dialogue uh, at various levels of government that we take these types of threats seriously and that um, there's, there's this understanding that the, uh, the governments just don't take this lightly. And uh, that's important uh, as just individual citizens that we petition our various levels of government to make sure that uh, all levels of government are investing in, cybersecurity and and protecting the uh, the critical infrastructure of the nation.
0: And to that point, I heard a cybersecurity expert like yourself on one of those American cable networks a couple of weeks ago talking about there was it was in reference to the attack on Australia. And again, just describing the potential that lies. And the guy said, look, you know, our enemies, he was talking about the United States. And he said, you know, our enemies completely understand if you want to take down the United States turn off the power that's all you have to do you don't have to fire a gun you don't have to do you just turn off the power and watch the united states literally implode so that's what you're talking about in terms of awareness at a local provincial and national level about protecting obvious infrastructure like power
4: absolutely and i think that's what's it's super interesting as you as we're seeing this evolution you know on so many levels even this evolution of war in which uh, you know the wars of the future are, are going to be fought um, you know lack of a better term online and, you know these these are these are cyber wars in which uh, yeah they, there may not be direct mass mass uh, casualties right but if you can like you're saying there shut down the power uh, you know that can lead to uh, chaos and that can lead to indirectly bringing down a A a nation. No question. It's very interesting to see this this ongoing evolution of, of 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 war, shall we say? And again, we're not. I don't think we're quite there yet. It's important that we have this type of dialogue now. Uh, because this is very much going to be the uh, 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 the future. It's just a matter of time.
0: Yeah, I need to take a break, but just before we take the break, just to, on a on a ballpark kind of summary level, how vulnerable, how how aware is Canada, uh, and therefore, if we are as under aware as perhaps we are how vulnerable does that make us and i'm talking about canada and then specifically bc what can you tell us about our vulnerability factor dominic i suspect and i'm i'm nervous but i think we're probably pretty darn high on that scale
4: uh, to quick summarize, I would say that we have amazing security professionals in place at all various levels of, of government. I think they have strong levels of awareness and doing amazing things. I think where the gap is right now is with, with leadership, Okay, uh, with our elected officials, uh, what they think they, they can do, what they should do is very different from uh, the area in which where they should actually proceed. And I think there's a lot of misinformation there. So that's how I would categorize it.
0: Okay, perhaps underestimating the determination of our enemies is part of that package too, isn't it? Absolutely. Dominic Vogel is with us. Mr. Vogel is founder and chief strategist with Cyber SC. We've been talking about hacking and uh, the digital war that is underway and uh, what is uh, at stake. And in this case, the Russians have been after the secrets to uh, the ingredients in a COVID-19 vaccine. And they continue relentlessly to search for that uh, while, of course, pretending to do uh, lab work on their own. Uh, Dominic, the other hack this week that caused problems Probably even more headlines and more attention was, by comparison, sloppy and amateurish, but nonetheless brazen as all get out hackers used the accounts of Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Joe Biden, Barack Obama, one of the Kardashians and 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 went out, hacked their Twitter accounts and laid down some kind of get rich quick bitcoin scam for example on Joe Biden's account they said well Joe says uh, if you send us uh, $1000 uh, in and, in bitcoin then we'll send you 2000 back and you know it's pretty obvious that there's a scam going on, but they made a couple of hundred thousand dollars. But I suppose, Dominic, more than anything else, it was just the the sheer cheek of the whole thing.
4: Yeah, it was it was definitely a, 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 an interesting uh, event for sure, you know, and, and, and facts have been slowly emerging uh, from it. You know, and, and it's important for, for the viewers to understand that the individual uh, accounts weren't uh, a compromise. It was through what's referred to as a uh, administrator panel, right. in which very important accounts <laughs> uh, uh, are able to be monitored and accessed on Twitter's back end. And apparently right now it looks like someone either working inside Twitter or someone who had insider knowledge of this panel uh, was able to, 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 to compromise it. Uh, and right now actually there's, some, there's been some stories emerging that it just may actually be uh, some... Uh, the young people, for lack of better better terms, some young hackers right. who are just who are just trying to uh, to do this uh, to, to demonstrate that they're able to do that. So the FBI is combing through the hacker uh, undergrounds right now, online forums. To, figure out exactly what happened and, and who perpetrated
0: it. Well, it's interesting that you would bring that up because there is always that element because we just talked about some very, very serious industrial espionage going on, and it, it continues at a global level, and it's very serious, a deadly serious, in fact. And yet at the same time, they're also out there in, in the, the cyber world— uh, hackers, young people and others simply who do this for sport, Dominic, just to prove that they can, you know, bust into the Pentagon or whatever the challenge of the week may be. There are no, uh, you know, uh, nasty intentions in terms of starting a war or anything like that, but they're still out there and they're still probing and they're still elated when they get in.
4: Well, and, and, and that's what makes, I would say, cyber, uh, cyber security as a whole so difficult in which you have so many different um, uh, threats coming from different, different uh, places. So like you were saying, you know, we, we have those uh, people, those young hackers who are just trying to prove themselves, make a name for themselves. Exactly. Then you have, you have nation states. Then you have organized crime. I mean, cyber crime has, has gone past the drug uh, trade as being the, 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 the crime of choice. Uh, uh, worldwide, it's, it's safer for, for crime syndicates to, <laughs> to do cybercrime than they go through, through drug crime. So it's, uh, you have all these different, you know, bad guys, for lack of a better term, on so many different fronts. That's what makes this such an interesting problem to solve.
0: Interesting stuff. Now, you at your website, cyber.sc, have uh, all, uh, all sorts of interesting things you pose uh, to is your company experiencing a cyber attack. You can press a button. Is your company prepared for a cyber attack? Press another button and take an assessment. And so I pressed a button, Dominic. I did the take the self-assessment button uh, because, uh, you know, I, I have, a, a like most of us, I got a computer, access to the Internet, and I fool around a little bit. And so I flew by the way badly (laughs) the the self-assessment i was miserable i didn't even get past question four and i realized man i am so out of it it's hard to believe are most internet users like me just complete i'm just blissfully unaware of those nasty negatives you
4: know, and, and, and uh, I think I'll give you a bit of a pass passing. Sterling, you know, the, the test is very much meant for smaller or, uh, organizations and, orga- and businesses, not individuals. So I'll give you somewhat of a passing grade. Okay, oh, okay. But,
0: uh, okay.
4: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it, I think on, on both levels, from both an individual perspective, uh, you know, a lot of people don't truly understand what what cyber. Uh, risks are, are out there, uh, especially engaging in, in the online world. And same thing with most small and mid-sized organizations. Uh, they, they chronically underinvest in cybersecurity, and they all think, oh, it's only for the big banks to worry about, or healthcare, you know, the, the, those organizations that need to worry. I'm just a you know, small manufacturing firm. No cyber uh, uh, hackers are going to come after me. It couldn't be more wrong. And I think that, that's where the, the, the big uh, issue is, that the people who should be worried,
0: yeah, we did a great uh, chat with Marty Weintraub from Deloitte in Toronto a couple of hours ago this morning, Dominic, about their new survey on retail and the future of malls. And of course, malls have been completely undermined by digital and only digital, only companies, retailers who have got a digital component stand even a chance of succeeding going forward. So as more and more smaller businesses recognize, you got to have a web profile, you got to have digital access, you got to be online. So more and more of them are realizing this, Dominic. How many of them, you're saying they're sort of constantly, chronically under-investing in their online profile. Does that include cybersecurity as well as just a website to begin with?
4: Absolutely. And even using the COVID example, many small mid-sized organizations were just completely unprepared to be able to have their their staff and their teams work remotely, right. uh, you know, being able to uh, work from home or work from anywhere and to do so securely. M- most small mid-sized organizations are still not uh, uh, prepared for that. Or if they enable any secure access or sorry, if they secured, they uh, put out any remote access, they did so in an insecure fashion. So it, it, it's it's we're very much living in a truly a digital age. Every organization is a digital company. Uh, you, you, uh, I always tell people, unless you're selling tacos at the back of your Volvo, you're a digital company and you deal with data and you have to deal with cyber risk. And most organizations still do not understand that.
0: And what percentage of the initial investment in getting an online presence must security be? That's
4: a, <laughs> a million-dollar question, Sterling. So I've been uh, chasing that, that uh, answer for many years. The, the, the thing which, rather than quantifying that, the thing I always tell people is that if you're developing your, your web presence, your online presence, your, your, you know, your, your company strategy, you need to be talking about security. Okay. So that needs to be part of the discussion. It needs to be interwoven as part of that DNA moving forward, not necessarily a, oh, you have to spend 10% of your budget, but you need to at least have those discussions and, and, and dialogue.
0: Okay, so that's that's the message. That's the take home from this. And by the way, friends, if you want to take the test, especially if you're a small business person thinking online, let alone having an online presence, go to cyber, C-Y-B-E-R dot S-C, and you can take that assessment. You can ask about your company and get lots of useful information about corporate and personal security. Dominic Vogel, always a pleasure to have you on the program. We appreciate your time on a Sunday morning very much. Always a pleasure, my friend. Enjoy the rest of your uh, Sunday. Thanks again for the plug. Appreciate it. (laughs) No problem at all. Cyber sc That's Dominic Vogel, the founder and chief strategist. A new study ranks the performance of currently available COVID-19 antibody tests conducted by researchers at NSF International and Vancouver's Novature Ventures. The peer-reviewed study finds significant variability in the accuracy of available COVID-19 antibody tests tests. That's a pretty interesting mouthful, and here to sort it all out and uh, perhaps translate some of it into uh, lay speak is Ali Articani. Mr. Artacani is founder and managing director of Novature Ventures here in Vancouver. Mr. Artacani, Ali, good morning and welcome.
5: Good morning. Thank you for having me on the...
0: Well, it's it's very good to have you with us. We appreciate it. This has been quite a week for COVID-19 research, not only because we are made even more aware of the amount of research that's going on around the world, but also the degree to which it it is coveted by others. And I'm referring, of course, to the security breaches attempted by Russia vis-a-vis vaccine labs in Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom. What can you tell us about what you know about what's going on vis-a-vis those cyber attacks you're in the business
5: well um unfortunately we are all in a race um we're all in a global race um covid19 is a national security to every nation and um as you said um unfortunately some nations or uh, some governments out there or some agents of governments we'll try to get uh, an advantage to seek an advantage in terms of science and technology. And um, we all need to have our guards up and we all need to advance science, but we also need to find a way of collaborating because um, COVID-19 is going to affect everybody. And um, the more we can collaborate to bring this to an end, the sooner we can actually have a solution to go back to our, uh, uh, normal lives, hopefully.
0: Agreed, agreed. And collaboration among scientists has been uh, really the way things have gotten done for a very, very long time, Ali. There's no question about that. So it, you're kind of caught in a very awkward position because you need to collaborate with peers around the world on projects that will see benefit for the world. And yet in the process, you need to protect yourself from malicious who would interfere with all of that process. So how much, uh, from the inception of this uh, COVID-19 program, how much attention has been paid to the security aspect of what you're doing?
5: You know, I think we're all aware of it. However, uh, you're actually bringing a really good point is that although we're aware of it, we have to take a lot more caution on uh, what we develop, and how much we can protect it. Um, and it's not that, you know, science is is actually democratized. We, uh, you know, scientists publish the moment they find something that can be available to the scientific world. And right. uh, we, they try to, you know, share it with everyone because we believe that, um, scientific believes that, you know, scientific research um, High tides rises all the boats. We all can benefit. Um, however, when you're developing technologies uh, that can really benefit you, and if someone is able to access that and take an advantage, and um, or actually attack your technology, so you're at a disadvantage. That needs to be looked at. Um, and you're absolutely correct. Um, there needs to be a lot more effort for all of us to be more careful.
0: Interesting, because it seems uh, uh, on, on the one hand, so critically important. And on the other hand, Ali, I'm sure it is seen by some as just a colossal waste of time because there's so much other work to be done. And yet uh, it w- it's it would be silly not to recognize the importance of security. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Novature Ventures before we get into some of the COVID-19 sure. details that we brought you on sure. here for. Tell us about your company, sir. Uh,
5: Absolutely. Sure. So we're a global advisory group uh, with over 100 advisors actually across the globe that we collaborate with. And um, our mission is to help best life science solution, whether they're pharmaceuticals, diagnostics or medical devices reach patients. Um, And speaking of collaboration, in this specific study, we collaborated with a global group, um, which is headquartered out of um, United Kingdom, NSF, um to evaluate um all the diagnostics out there for covid uh the challenge we have uh, john uh, as you can imagine we have th- you know 3 billion people that are on the lockdown right mm-hmm, now yeah and you know although we're very excited about vaccines and hopefully one day we'll have a vaccine um one of the best ways for people to go back is to figure out um whether they are they have some sort of an immunity Hundreds of tests have been developed. Some of them have been rushed, unfortunately, poorly into the market.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Um, in, our, in our field of work, we have something called a target product profile, meaning that it's almost like an, an ideal architecture of a home. You first figure out what kind of home you want, then you build it. In this case, we sort of started building it and then figuring out whether this is the right home. And unfortunately, half of the companies out there that are developing diagnostics were not really in medical diagnostics space. They were doing other things, environmental diagnostics, other things. So, um, people have been developing these tests. They have all sorts of claims around them, mm-hmm. and um, what we found is almost fifty percent of them actually don't meet those claims in independently validated studies. So it's like as if you go on Match dot com, you you know, you claim you're very handsome. But when people meet you and they actually test you, you're not what you know what you claim. But <laughs> and it's the same thing with these tests.
0: Interesting analogy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we talked now. Dr. Bonnie Henry has educated us British Columbians to the point where we understand something about serological tests. These are tests for antibodies. Tell us about those tests and what involvement you have with the serological tests and how well do they actually perform? How reliable are they, Ali? To be honest with you, um,
5: unfortunately, we found some of the reliability and a lot of these serological tests um, to be extremely varied. Um, many of them are not reliable and some of some are, and actually some of the ones that are more reliable, health Canada is actually studying them further. Okay. Hopefully we can have them out there. Um, we have published this. We have actually a website um, that I will, you know, uh, for the listeners that can go to and um, it's called COVID. Uh, portal.net where we actually pub you know we have this publications amongst other publications that we find helpful to the community over 2 to 300 publications in this area and other areas related to covid where uh, listeners can go in and see Bonnie Henry has been phenomenal we're immensely grateful to have her in these dark times to guide us through this period and um, serological tests just to you know quickly to give you an idea what it is its gives you a level of it shows what kind of immunity you have right so we go through this varying um, uh, you know we we go through varying um, immunology uh, reactions as we actually as the virus comes into our body and we react to it and a serological test basically says where you are and then how long that immunity will be hopefully so it's it's critical i think we're still learning a lot of these tests are still being developed, they're being optimized. Um, I can't say that any of them are, uh, are the ones that really needs to get on the market. They all need to be used um, under discretion of physicians. Um, everybody around the world is still testing them, and hopefully soon uh, we'll be able to we'll have these tests out in the you know, pharmacies where people can pick it up or they can you know, you know ship to their homes, and you can figure out whether you can go to
0: work safely. Our guest is Ali Ardakani, the founding and managing director, founder, rather, and managing director at Novature Ventures here in Vancouver, Uh, and uh, according to their website, our experts are publishing articles and supporting companies that are working with health solutions to help solve the global pandemic. Ali, when a person goes, and I'm thinking a lot of uh, American examples, we see a person getting a test. Uh, The tester with a face shield and all the PPE gear on, takes a swab and either uh, runs it up and down the inside of the cheek or up and down the inside of the nose. What kind of testing is that and how reliable are those tests?
5: Yeah, so uh, John, that is actually, um, you know, that's a molecular test. Uh, So that's a a fairly reliable test that's detecting whether there is any uh, trace of the virus. If you notice, they have these long swabs. They shove it up your nose. Exactly, yeah. I've had one done. It's very uncomfortable. I'm sure. Um, but that's, that's very, actually, that's fairly accurate. Um, oh. That one just looks for any trace of the virus.
0: So that is the test that
5: we, yeah, sorry, uh, so,
0: go ahead. No, no, so that's what, that, that test determines the presence of the virus in that individual at that moment.
5: Exactly. So you can imagine that's like just taking a snap picture at that given time. Does this, does this person have the virus or not?
0: So what's the difference between that and, a, and, a, and an antibody test? <clears throat>
5: sure. So the, the other test that we looked at in this specific one is actually looking to see if you're, you have been exposed to the virus and long enough and properly enough, for your body to develop antibodies to basically fight the virus. Aha! So that's what. So it's a little. It's quite different. So if you, if uh, people get a chance to look at the publication, we've drawn a hypothetical graph where you can actually see it's a journey when you actually are exposed to the virus. It's sort of like. You know there's a few days where you actually have you don't have any symptoms mm-hmm. then you have se- you know then you have symptoms then you have severe symptoms and then it levels off in that journey. Your body is developing these antibodies, so the serological tests are effectively detecting those antibodies, and based on what we're gonna learn, we're still learning john of I mean, course we just we just found out a couple of days ago um that um they're actually saying. Your antibodies level off significantly after infection. So although we're thinking or actually we're hypothesizing that once you get sick, once you get COVID, you will have antibodies and you may not get it again. Right. We don't know that. So you may actually have to be immunized every six months or a year, depending on what we learn. You can imagine we're sort of building a car while we're driving. Yeah. That's what, what's happening right now. So that's the challenge.
0: So even in the Especially case with a lot of disease. Yeah. Sorry, uh, no, even in the case of a successful vaccine. So let's assume that one of these many groups around the world develops a successful, effective vaccine, it's still highly likely, Ali, that a person, that we, the population, are going to need to get vaccinated on an annual basis, unlike when you're a kid in grade one and you're six years old, you get a booster shot, and that takes care of biz for the rest of your life. It's not going to be that kind of vaccine this time around, most likely, is it?
5: Well, that's, you know, again, we're learning, based on some information we have so far, it looks like, um, unfortunately, your antibodies level off. So you may have to get immunized on a regular basis. Yeah. And, you, you know, you, and we, have, we have things like that out there, like um, you know, the flu vaccine, sure. we get it every year. Mm-hmm. And 50% of the time, it doesn't work. So you still take it for the other 50%. That's still good. So at the end of the day, you know, we still don't know This is, you know, this is only, you know, less than six months, how much we've learned about this virus. And I can tell you that every day we actually are publishing, you know, uh, on this website, if you go to the resources, we're putting up um, all the latest publications from nature, science, and other reputable journals. I can tell you, we're trying to read all of them. And every day we're learning new things. And we've been living and breathing this for the last six months.
0: Yeah, and Novature.ca is the website that our guest is speaking about, friends. And, you know, the other aspect of this that is disturbing to some, Ali, because it's difficult to follow, are people who are diagnosed as having COVID-19, but who are asymptomatic. They show absolutely no signs of illness of any kind at all, and yet they have the virus. That's a whole other segment of human beings to deal with, isn't it?
5: That's right. And, you know, what this um, study that's going to come out in Nature, apparently in a a couple of weeks, showed is that those types of patients may not actually develop significant immunity. Immunity seems to be developed in patients that had severe COVID. So your antibodies had to actually fight something significant to be developed properly. So um, that's, again, these are new learnings. It's a journey we're traveling and as we travel further in this journey, we're going to learn more.
0: Indeed. And of course, the other thing that we're already beginning to discover is the long-term effects. This is not something that just goes away like the flu. Uh, it can cause damage. If you get a serious enough case, it can damage organs in your body and so on. Of course, as you point out, we're at the beginning of understanding all of this. So there's, there's an enormous amount of learning still ahead.
5: So you brought up a fantastic point. I think Um, you know, originally, um, I used to think that, you know, why don't we just get it and get immune as we learn more about the chronic aspect of this disease and how lasting some of those, uh, chronic damage can be. You really don't want to get it. Um, and you touched on it really well on this, that you will, you may have other issues that you have to deal with for the rest of your life. Yeah. So hopefully we can avoid it again, using diagnose, you know, diagnostics, contact tracing. The way the government here has done a phenomenal job uh, communicating you know, to us how to deal with the virus, um, educating all of us, making us comfortable, but at the same time, helping us going to, to some sort of a normal self um, has been very effective. And I just hope all around the world, people can you know, you know, take advantage of what we've done here, Um, and actually collaborate so we can bring this terrible virus to an end.
0: Well, I hope what you're doing does turn out to be as fruitful as it certainly sounds like it could be. Ali Ardakani, thank you so much for being with us this morning, and please carry on the good work. Thank you.